from New York City. A podcast from working actors, directors, and playwrights. This is the Cry Havoc Company. Hello, and welcome to the Cry Havoc Podcast. Today around the table we have... Jen Reichert, I'm a writer. Tim Davis, I'm an actor and a writer. Jenny Curlin, I'm an actor. Will Harper, I'm an actor. And Kit Lavoy, I'm a writer and a director. Today, we're going to be talking about working on monologues. Monologues are something uh, that appear in many plays, obviously, and additionally are, as I say, the coin of the realm for auditioning. They're something that, for the most part, when actors audition, they are very often asked to come in and perform a speech from a play that lasts a minute to two minutes. And so we're going to talk today uh, both about how you work on a monologue in a, the context of a play and also how you work on a monologue to prepare for an audition. We are not going to be talking today about how you select a good monologue for an audition. That actually is a topic unto itself that we'll actually have a whole other episode on. But the question for this is, once you have a monologue, now what? What do you do with it to get it ready? So to kick off, let's start talking about monologues in their natural habitat, which is in the context of a play. And monologues are often referred to as uh, speeches. Uh, it's the places where one person talks for more than four or five or six lines of text. And they tend to come in one of two forms. Uh, monologues, which is where a person is talking at length to another character in a play. Or a soliloquy, uh, which is where a character is alone on stage and discussing or working out, or however you want to figure it out, their inner struggle. So let's talk first about monologues in the context of a play. What do you do or differently, or do you do anything differently, when you're approaching a part of a play where your character talks at length without being interrupted? One of the important things about working on a monologue in a play is is it not for your character not to rely on the fact that you won't be interrupted. Um, some people, when they work on a monologue, they think, oh, well, I just get to take all the time I want here because they don't get to talk for a page and I get to say whatever I want. But I think you should, you should say the things you have to say in the monologue with the idea that at any moment, at any word, someone could try to cut you off. And so you have to be, you know persuasive or, you know, tactical about what you're saying. So it's not just, you don't just, like, wallow, wallow in it. You What's a better word? Well, you have, you, have to, you have to earn the time to say the entirety of the text. The thing about a, a monologue is that it's, it's while it often gets called a speech, it, I think it's important to know that it's, it's not a speech. You're not at a lectern, you know, giving a, a, a lecture to, to a captive audience that, you know, a monologue in the context of plays... It's, it's actually a result of a dialogue between two or more people in which one person is speaking for an extended period of time. The, the way most definitions uh, uh, express it is as that they are uninterrupted, but I try to, to frame it as they, they are taking up the space and taking up that time, that they've earned that somehow. Therefore, it's not a, a speech of uninterrupted text, but rather, as you said, Jen, you're you're earning that space and taking that time and you're actually speaking with someone else. I think, um, personally, like, I, I, I try not to approach monologues any different than just if I have, you know, a, a one or two word response, period. I feel that, depending on the, depending on the type of speech, and I, I think we'll even jump into this later, between, like, soliloquies and, like, just a monologue, like, within the text of, like, a more modern play is finding where the ideas are broken up and when when one idea finishes and if that sparks the next idea. Yeah. So I try to, I mean, personally, I try to approach monologues as if, like, okay, when I'm done with this hunk, I'm done talking. Oh, but this brings up this other thing, which is really important for me to say to you. Mm-hmm. And this brings up this other thing. And so, like, sort of a cascading effect is, like, what I try with, and it's not, I'm not always successful. I'm, I'm rarely successful but <laughs> I, I think that I, the, like the most well rendered um, 
pieces of text on stage, you usually tend to... Uh, the, the, the text is somewhat ahead of the actor, and they're, they're holding on to it, trying to, trying to make a point. I think sometimes people can talk to the end of the monologue, like speak from the beginning of monologue, looking at what happens at the end of the monologue. It's like, if it's something you've been thinking about saying to someone for a long time, so you've, you know, like your character has thought over and over about how you would say this to someone, I think in that case you could, in some way, have rehearsed it as the character. And so you could be driving towards something at the end. But I, I also think that it could be, you know, following your thought process from, from one thought to the next is important. Like, you shouldn't always take what's the climax of the monologue and, like, just run straight towards it. You can, you know, climb s- stairs, as it were, you know. Yeah. Like, you know. And get sidetracked also. Right, right. Um, you know, and Tangents I, and stuff. I mean, I think that actually is, is, is one of the differences a bit between a section of a play that's a monologue and that strict dialogue, that... When it's shorter dialogue, the primary stimulus you're working from and reacting to, because as they say, acting is reacting, what you're reacting to is what the other person has just said, for the most part. I mean, we've talked before, it is in the context of all of the other work you've done, but essentially you hear what the other person says, and it's what you have to say back to them. But in the case of a monologue, that usually will take up about the first sentence or two of the monologue, is direct reaction to what was just said. But then there's other stimulus that comes into play that you have to identify that keeps you moving. And it could be something that they said earlier that you didn't take them up on before but are going to take them up on now. It could be something that has been, as you said, Jen, an issue between you for a long time that you're deciding to take up now. It could be something else that's in the room that you notice. It could be hearing what you just said and reacting to what you just said, or reacting to your internal thought process, whatever's going on. But you need to find stimulus in places other than simply what your reaction is to what the other person has just said. Yeah, or you could be re- reacting to a new thought that you have, right? You could, you know, you could be your. You, so, there could be something fresh and surprising to yourself that you hadn't thought. Like you could have an epiphany within the monologue. I think that's the thing is, is you need to look at all the elements in, in that monologue and understand what the character knows versus what the actor knows. The actor knows they have a, a certain amount of text in which they're 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 going to be uninterrupted. The character does not know that, and I mean that's I think that's an important aspect when working on a monologue. I mean it's an important aspect when you're working on a play. The, the character doesn't know the scene lasts you know, five pages long. The character's trying to, to, to end the conflict and win the conflict now with, with whatever weapons they have. I think that's important, uh, particularly with the monologue, where there's going to be such a temptation to let yourself off the hook and because you know you're not going to be interrupted for six, eight, ten lines a page, whatever the, the length of the monologue is. And I think it's important to search out those stimulus that keep it an active dialogue in which you've earned the room. And it can be a helpful exercise to do in rehearsal, either as a director to give it to actors or for actors to do it amongst themselves, is to give the other actor permission to interrupt if they feel they want to. I mean, obviously not by the time you're actually doing the, the performance, but you know, but th- there is something to the idea of not having the luxury of knowing you're going to get through your full page and actually having to, as the actor, hold the other actors, hold the other actor's attention. I think what's also important with working with monologues and remembering that it's really a, a one-sided dialogue when it's in the context of a play is not only what the other actor might say to interrupt you, but what they're doing, both in terms of how they're reacting to what you're saying and or you know, we, we've sort of touched on this, on how you're earning their attention, earning their time. Uh, I, I've done exercises where one actor will go through their monologue and the other actor will interrupt, as, as Kit mentioned, or the other uh, exercise I've seen where the other actor is not permitted to interrupt, but the other actor is allowed to do whatever their impulse is to argue with the actor delivering the monologue. And so they'll find physical activity to do. They may or may not leave the room. They may give a reaction to the actor that they may not uh, expect so that when the actor is delivering the monologue, the actor needs to not only be aware of what they're saying and how they're trying to build their argument, but how their argument is landing. And gives them something to react to. 
to and, and also, word. and also, if if in that the monologue may not be one argument, it may be a series of thoughts building off of what the other actor is giving you. And it's a one-sided verbal dialogue, but as you said, like what what somebody is telling you non-verbally is part of the conversation. How you what you said about landing it. Mm-hmm. How they are receiving what you are saying is important and can change how you are delivering the monologue as you're delivering it. Mm-hmm. Um, that could change between one run and the next, is, mm-hmm. is how, how the person who you're talking to is hearing you. Mm-hmm. And, and actually, that can relate to working on it outside of the context of a play. Yeah, and th- there, there are certain s- schools of thought about theater that say, I mean, I know I've been told by directors at times... The idea that when it's the other person's monologue, it's your job to be still and quiet so that you're not distracting from them. But, I mean, I I think your real responsibility is to continue to be an active scene partner for them. And and I think ultimately that idea with the division of labor is that the actor's job is just be there and be there with their scene partner. If you need to be dialed back as an actor, it's the director's job to dial you back. And as the actor, you should trust them if they say... I'm not hearing what they're saying because you're throwing pots around the kitchen, then you need to listen to that. But that's always, I think, a place where it's better to let yourself to be an active and connected scene partner during the other person's uh, uh, monologue and be dialed back rather than be, quote-unquote, polite to the other actor and leave them alone on stage, essentially, for the minute and a half that they have that monologue mm-hmm. to deliver. That's such a great point that, that you want to be uh, an active scene partner in that sense. I, I've heard that as well, that my, the scene partner who's not speaking was distracting, which makes me wonder where the scene partner who is speaking, who is delivering the monologue, where their attention was. You know, that if, if, <laughs> if they're speaking this monologue to their other scene partner, yet their scene partner is distracting them, uh, it, it makes me wonder who they're doing the scene with. Well, part of it, too, and I think it's just a a big trap to avoid with a lot of things, especially monologue, is the trap of imagining it as your big moment. Because I talk for two minutes here, it is therefore my big moment. And therefore, it is time to stop being in the scene and start being something to be watched. And it's interesting, because not only, I think, is that doesn't lead to the best acting, you know, when you're doing it artificially for the audience instead of trying to engage the other people who are actually in the scene. But especially if you are doing your work the rest of the time, it makes the monologue feel other. It makes it feel like it's not part of the same scene. Um, and and you do see that sometimes. I mean, literally, I, we saw a show a few weeks ago where every time somebody, although I think it must have been the direction because every person did it, but every, it was a Shakespeare show, but every time someone had a monologue, even if it was in a scene with other people, they would turn to the audience and walk to the apron of the stage and deliver it from there. And, like, I don't even know what to say about that, except that it certainly didn't feel like they were doing anything other than saying Shakespeare at me. I want to go on record as saying that any monologue delivered as such within a scene with folks, where you just turn down stage and talk to the audience for some reason because, obviously, everyone, no one else is on stage with you, is, is a rough choice to, to watch and a rough choice it's also um, as a as, as being I mean because I'm I've been the other person in that scene where you have uh, you, your scene partner launches into you know a long bit of text it actually makes it harder for you to engage and to actually give them anything because they've they have to disconnect from you. As, 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 and usually it's, I mean, um, in my experience, I'm not saying this is true for everybody, but in my experience when that's happened, it's been more of a directorial choice. A lot of the actors I know tend to like, well, I just want to be here with this person, just say it to them, you know? And then the director's like, no, we really need to make sure that, you know, this, this is a, as, as, as you say, kid, your big moment. And that's something I just I, I've never been able to get on board with, and I don't know if I've just always been just dead ass wrong, or if it's just something that's I think a lot of people feel but just don't necessarily uh, uh, express it because it's not necessarily popular. Well, it's it's hard to pull off, and uh, and I think the instinct actors have to resist that somewhat or at least struggle with it is because. You know, one of the things we're talking about today is the difference between a monologue and a soliloquy, and you've essentially in a situation like that, the director has set up a situation where the actor is really prepared to do the monologue. They're prepared to have an extended dialogue with their scene partner. 
and then you rip them out of that and say, now do a soliloquy. And then once your soliloquy is finished, go back, you know, go mm-hmm. back into the scene. So you've set up circumstances for both the actors, the world, and the audience, and then kind of betrayed that a little bit. And I've asked everybody to accept that that's going to work. The only time I've ever really seen that work is when that choice is actually commented upon. Totally. When when it, it, there's almost a comedic effect of of like, you know, who are you talking of the to? character stopping the play to talk you know to the audience or to talk out their 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 inner struggle. And I think the only reason it works by choosing to comment on the convention is because it is such an unworkable convention. And and I think it also. I mean, I also would like to go on record as Will did. Um, <laughs> To say that that is not to say that there isn't such a thing as someone's big moment and a moment yeah. that needs to be framed. Of course there is. But A, generally when people are trying to make a moment their big moment, it usually doesn't land because, again, they're breaking from the stakes of the play. But also for a director to make the choice to say turn out to the audience, candidly just shows a lack of resourcefulness on the part of the director. There are ways to stage and frame a play that puts the actors in physical positions where one of them is in a much stronger physical position where they are the focal point of the action from the audience's point of view without them having to step away from the scene and turn out to the audience. And I also feel like it's the director's responsibility to, if it is the big moment, to make it the big moment and not something that you need to necessarily be thinking about. For the director to have his eye or her eye on the ball and to be making sure that that reads as such and for you to not have to worry about that, essentially, and just to be getting your point across and connecting with the other actor. We did a podcast earlier about objectives in terms of, and and I mentioned you need character objectives and you need actor objectives. And the awareness with the monologue in terms of this big moment issue is, is kind of goes directly to that point. As the actor in the play trying to tell the story, you may need to be aware of, you know what, this monologue needs to land. This is this character's big moment. It's vital to the story. As the actor, I need to know that. As the character, it is going to serve me uh, not at all to gear up for this monologue as the big moment. Because if the awareness that my character has is this is my big moment of the play rather than the character, as Kit said, struggling through his obstacles to, to achieve an objective. And you, you certainly re- can have your audience, your actor, real, your character rather, realize this is a big moment in my life. Yes. yes. But that has to do with what the stakes are. Yes. yes. Not... What you're you, saying. Yeah, and not the delivery of it. Yeah. And certainly, because again, part of the issue is, I think, what you see when you make it the actor's big moment is that it actually lowers the stakes for the character because the, the actor, again, is busy acting, mm-hmm. is busy framing themselves, is busy doing whatever, rather than solving the huge problem that is in front of them. Um, which generally, if the, if the character realizes, this is my big moment, this is the last chance I have to convince her to not get on the plane, it is going to be much more compelling to the audience to watch that character desperately try to keep her from getting on the plane rather than the actor desperately try to be impressive in that moment. Yeah. I mean, it sounds silly, except, but, but I understand it. I understand that idea of an actor has read a script and looked and realized, wow, the reason I want to do this play is because of this big moment, that they want to make that moment something special. I understand that, that impulse, which is why it's a trap. Yeah, most artists, most actors I know are, are fans of work that they like. So when you see another piece of work that you know has a monologue or something like that, you see a piece that impresses you, you feel this impulse to, I want to do that, I want to do something like that. You recognize where those opportunities are and are tempted to try to, to accomplish something that has inspired you, which is understandable but disastrous. But it's amazing how much of that you can actually... Actually, you can get away with even in, in even in a final rendering of uh, you know. Well, I saw this thing that really inspired me, and I really want to do this thing like this, and treating that moment as that moment, and how much of that sometimes even registers as 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 something sincere, it, and it will still even look like the scene is squarely between you and the other people that are on stage with you. Mm-hmm. The problem that I've run into is it may, where it may work once. You're hard-pressed to ever have it work 
again. Mm-hmm. Like in my experience, it's like it's it's been something like oh, I I was able to do this thing which I, I really enjoyed and I and it worked. It, it it was like oh, that's that was great. And then trying that another time and it it um, it didn't. And you know, just like falling on my face like several times before I realized how important it is just to specifically, no matter what the situation is, um, keeping the scene between you and the people that you're on stage with, rather than mm-hmm. working to be impressive or to, whether consciously or unconsciously, pay homage to something that you saw that you thought was really awesome and really inspired you to do something great. The, the other reason that the, the being impressive is, is such a temptation is because, at least for the extent of that monologue, there's no one there to stop you. Which is why it's it's important to create those obstacles for yourself to understand that it is uh, an extended dialogue and, and you know having for yourself a, a creation of the circumstances of, of what the other actor is doing if you're doing it by yourself or in the context of the play to really stay engaged with your scene partner because if you're if you're doing a scene in which there's dialogue as as we typically define it whatever your plans are as the actor or the character the other your scene partner is going to throw obstacles at you they're going to throw things at you that are going to, to uh, if, if you're a receptive, open, good actor, that are going to cause you to change. And But when you're doing a, a, a monologue, if you, you don't build those things in for yourself, the great temptation is to be impressive because there is, with, without a, there is no obstacle to get in your way. There is no battle unless you create it internally and then, and then are able to have that battle particularly when you're doing the monologue by yourself and the scene partner isn't there. That, for me, is always the great temptation with, with the monologue, is that there's no one there to stop me from trying to be impressive. And so you constantly have to be aware of what you could do to make that monologue a struggle. Let's actually talk a bit about the situations where you have a monologue where there is literally no one there to stop you, when you're doing a soliloquy, when you're alone on stage. Or actually, uh, Tim, when you pointed out uh, the type of, of scene where a character will stop and turn mm-hmm. to the audience and explain their inner thoughts. I think technically that's a soliloquy, but other people are on stage, but you're not engaging them. What, how, how is delivering a soliloquy different than delivering a monologue or another part of a play? I think those are incredibly difficult. The, the battle that uh, I've often uh, been a part of and have, have been witness to is whether they would actually ever even even exist. There's a, there's an argument that's saying that nobody ever does this. Nobody ever speaks this eloquently out loud uh, in, in attempting to to achieve some sort of whatever their objective is in, in overcoming their inner struggle. The difficulty of doing a soliloquy uh, is more arduous, I think, than doing a monologue because if you're not using the audience as another character and a lot of the things we've been talking about that keep a monologue active, having a scene partner, having objectives, having someone struggle with you, not give you their full attention, you know, the, those things that allow you to attempt to be active in trying to earn the room, don't exist. You know, it, there's already such a great temptation when you have a soliloquy or a monologue to allow it to be reflective and, and you, uh, to fall into some of the traps we've already talked about. I think it's even rougher when you have a soliloquy in which the text is already set up to be reflective and you already are alone on stage, and you don't have another person you're talking to, you are speaking your thoughts, all of those just line up, you know, the stars sort of align for it to be a really inactive, uh, passy, squishy moment, which, you know, is something that I've experienced as, as an actor, both as an actor delivering one and as an audience member watching them. Here's a question. Like, a, a, the convention of a soliloquy is artificial to life in general. Most people don't sit alone at home and speak aloud what they're thinking. They think it inside their head, you know. But there are other things, elements of stagecraft that are artificial. Musicals have songs, mm-hmm. you know, and, and, and their fights are staged. You know, there, there are other things that are artificial. How do you approach a soliloquy? What are the tools that you combat that inactivity with and make it a storytelling tool like a song would be in a musical or a staged fight would be in a well, I think the first thing that I attempt to do is recognize the convention that even if I'm doing something that would seem to be, you know, kitchen sink realism, the playwright has asked me to step outside, to step away from that, and you know, deliver a, a soliloquy, to speak my inner voice, to speak my inner thoughts, and, and, and you know, deal with my inner struggle. And I, I think step one for me is just acknowledging that that convention is actually happening, and to not attempt to confine myself 
to the rules of, of kitchen sink realism if, if that's the play that's been set up. Because... Like to try to make it into a monologue. Yeah, yeah. And, and, I've, and I think that's the debate, particularly when you see contemporary plays. I've heard people you know, argue, well, you know, people do do that. They do speak their thoughts you know, aloud. They do have these arguments to themselves out loud. And I, I'm not in a position to say whether people do that or not. I know what I particularly do. But I, I think step one is acknowledging the convention that you are in a, 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 a realistic play in this particular case. You've been asked to step away from, from this realistic situation and deliver this, 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 this soliloquy, which are your inner, your, your inner thoughts out loud, which most people, I would argue, at least articulately in the way most uh, uh, playwrights write, would not occur. I think that convention just needs to be acknowledged. And that sort of frees you up, I think, from, from attempting to sort of balance realism in an unrealistic situation. Yeah, I, I mean, I, I don't think in that case it's an especially large leap of faith. I mean, there are, there are, I mean, again, almost everything that you do, you are not, in fact, a 9th century Scottish lord. So the fact that you're dressed up in a kilt and have a sword and a pretended to kill your wife's uncle, the king, and then turn out to the audience and talk about it. Candidly, the fact that you're talking about it is not the biggest leap of faith you've made that evening, because people do talk themselves through things. Whether it's out loud or not is a separate issue, but people certainly think their way through things, and to take the step that now we will do it loud enough so that the people who have paid the money to come and watch it happen can hear it, uh, you know, is not all that big a leap to you take. You're your own voiceover. You, you're, <laughs> yeah, you're your your own yes. Um, and I, I I also think it's it's worth saying that I actually tend, generally tend to agree with you that I for the most part think in Shakespeare that with the monologues and you engage the audience, it's very often the most interesting way to do that. But that really is ultimately a matter of taste, and especially a matter of the taste of the director. That you certainly can end up with a director who will say. This is I don't. This is not to the audience. This is to yourself. You're talking yourself through it, and then you need to, you know, find a way to deal with that. One thing I, I always think is really useful is uh, Stuart Vaughn, the director, and uh, he wrote a terrific book on directing. That he talks about that uh, people can deliver lines to one of five things. I, th- I think this is correct. I think it was five. That either to another person, which is a monologue, or to themselves, or to God or to a prop, or to the audience. That those are the places that they can go. And But that actually can be really helpful, especially if you're delivering a soliloquy where the director says that you, can, you know, don't deliver it to the audience. You know, certainly is this a dagger I see before me? Mm-hmm. That speech can be delivered to, the, to a dagger. You want to do uh, to be or not to be, and have him talking to a knife he's holding, or a knife he knows he's got in his room that he's going to slit his wrist with if he decides this is what he's going, if, that, that not to be is the correct answer. You know, but, but there's something about giving yourself a very specific target, whether it be the audience, whether it be, uh, again, a prop, whether it be God, but giving yourself a specific audience to whom you can make an argument that will really help to activate a monologue in a way that's other than just talking about your feelings, but really necessitates making an argument. And if you are in a case where you're doing this soliloquy, where you're talking to yourself, it's incumbent upon you, I think, to take both sides of the argument, which is, in fact, what you do when you're talking yourself through something. Well, if I do this, this will happen. But if I do this, this will happen. What do I do? And if you look at the text that way, and, again, try to walk yourself through the argument to hear the argument, and then to, with the next step of the argument, respond to your earlier part of the argument, that, again, will make it connected, will make it part of the storytelling, will make it active, and, in the case of Shakespeare, generally, will make it much more understandable. I I really like and appreciate your point about having a target. Because I, I think from working with, with directors previously, and, and not every director I've worked with, but when you, you have a monologue or a soliloquy, and at, at some point the actors will, will ask, oh, who, who, am I, who am I saying this to? And if the answer from the director is, you're, this is your inner struggle, you're talking to yourself, you need to find a target. Because 
intentionally or not, and I don't mean maliciously or, or not, the, the director has, has left the actor adrift. The director's, you're literally left alone on stage now. And we, without a target, that actor is going to remain sort of alone and adrift, looking for a place to put all this energy. It, it can be a really rough moment. So I, I really appreciate your idea, the notion of, of having a target. And the, I'm, I'm actually going to remember the five, <laughs> those five things. I actually really, really learned something today. I'm going to go get Stuart Bond's book. I think, for, for me, the way I've, I've had to approach soliloquies before, I actually haven't had to do a ton of them. Uh, which I'm thankful for because, A, I'm a little frightened of them. But uh, when I have done them and they've, and they've been successful, I've always, I've always gone to this place in my mind of like trying to, make, trying to actively make it a release. Emotionally, intellectually, you, you, you really are going to be uninterrupted and you're allowed to really hash things out. And sometimes, sometimes you know, it's, it's, it's for me, like just connecting it to my personal life, Sometimes the best thing for me to when I'm de- like uh, dealing with something where there's several different uh, where there's a struggle like internally, personally, in real life, um, <clears throat> is to actually not have someone there and to to spend thirty minutes talking out loud while singing um, about specifically why I want this to happen and how I get it. And, um, and when doing it in, in the context of a play, I think it's been, I've been most successful and actually felt the most active when I allow that release to, to be a part of, of the rendering. And a, a big, a, a, you know, a rather, rather big part of it is to, to be able to finally let all of this go in such a way that I don't have to fix any of it. This is exactly how I'm feeling and I'm not going to offend anyone by saying exactly what I'm feeling in this moment, as opposed to having to, when you're dealing with a scene partner, you know, how diplomatic you're being also figures into into the scene, you know, sometimes. Not with every scene, but sometimes you are being diplomatic, and when you're, in, in, when you're dealing with a soliloquy, sometimes it's, uh, it's best to embrace the fact that you don't have to be. And I think in terms of rehearsals, <clears throat> that's something that it can be really helpful to work on soliloquies alone. To lay in bed in a dark room and work through your soliloquy, it actually does sort of heighten that idea of it's your private moment, to to work on it in a place where you're not beholden to the fact that the stage manager needs us to take a break in five minutes and the director's looking for a certain thing, because that's what everyone's job is in that room. But there's something that I think is really can help you get in touch with that, the way that your mind works when you're alone and trying to work something out if you actually are working on it when you are alone. I think also in the context of a play, particularly when working on Shakespeare, the soliloquies can sort of help guide you as to the character development in the play. Uh, I recall I had the, the great fortune to, to work on Hamlet, and you know, months before we got into a rehearsal of, of the rest of the play with the other actors, the director and I were working through the soliloquies. And what became really helpful for me was as I was learning the soliloquies, figuring out where they occurred in the play and the things that were occurring before the, the, that soliloquy and after that soliloquy. And you could really track, I felt, Hamlet's struggle and his growth and where he went and where his, his journey in that play was through the soliloquies. And it became really instructive in figuring out where I was in each moment and what I was struggling with in that soliloquy, how that affected the rest of the scenes. Uh, let's move on now to talking about the other role that monologues play in the life of an actor, which is the audition monologue, where most auditions, as we've discussed in, in other uh, episodes, first auditions, they ask you to come in with a monologue prepared. They'll generally say, a, you know, a comedic monologue, a dramatic monologue, a Shakespeare monologue, whatever it is that, that they want to see you do, and you come in and you have a minute or two minutes, and you do your thing, and you leave. And it's a particularly challenging thing that I think a lot of actors struggle with, because there's a degree to which it is, in some ways, feels like a very separate part of the acting process from working on a play. And I actually, it was really only in in thinking about the fact that we were going to be doing this episode, that I really think I know a part of the reason, which is that a lot of times what that is, is essentially doing a monologue, a monologue that is meant to be delivered to another person in the context of a scene, and delivering it in a soliloquy setting, Mm -hmm. standing there alone, 
without another person to deal with. And, and I think that's part of why it feels so unnatural. But that said, that is what you have to do. That's one of, the, one of the skills that an actor has to have, is to be able to do that in auditions. So what do you guys do about approaching, preparing, and, and doing a monologue for audition purposes? The first thing I do, and this sounds really basic, but the first thing that I do is learn the text inside and out. I work on the monologues that I use for auditions all the time. I do uh, a, a lot of, for my own work as an actor, I do a lot of sensory work. I will go through the monologues while I'm practicing the sensory work. Usually uh, every day that I get up, I actually do a lot of uh, vocalizing, warming up my voice, warming up my body, and part of my, my process is going through every audition monologue I have. I'll do them while doing activities around the house. I'll do them, you know, I will, in rehearsal for myself often, I will sing them, I will go through them at different speeds. I just, I want to have the facility to do, to be at absolute comfort using that text so that when I'm in an audition situation, once I've built in all those other things that I need to do for the work of being prepared, of being relaxed, of knowing what my objective is, of knowing how many people are going to be in the room or not knowing how many people are going to be in the room that I feel really, really comfortable being able to layer on whatever circumstances I need. I, again, as either both uh, the actor um, in that audition situation and whatever type of character I am for that monologue uh, in the circumstances delivering that text. I just want to be as comfortable as I can so that, you know, no matter what else, you know, what other obstacle may be there, because often at auditions there's, there's obstacles that pop up that you were not anticipating that the, the, the text itself is something that I never have to worry about, that I have that cold and can, can do it backwards if necessary. I, um, I work from a place of, I mean, like, I, I think that everything that Tim said is, like, dead on because of the, the potential of unforeseen obstacles. You have to know your text inside and out. And oftentimes you'll go in, you'll get adjustments on things that you've been doing forever, and you've got to have the facility to go back and forth and to try new stuff. Also, I think, for me, I, I have... And this has been, like, life and death for me, um, is having an extremely specific moment before mm-hmm. when launching into the monologue. And I, 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 can't, I can't stress it enough. It's, it's the monologue that I'm doing in an audition has to be a response to something. And it's amazing how that colors the whole thing. And it just kind of allows you to to just live in those circumstances and sustain that world for that amount of time. It is, it is actually interesting that in doing monologues for auditions, that's the place where I think it is more important than anything else, than any place else almost, to know yourself as an actor and to know what works for you. Because again, you have a minute of time to get a callback for this, you know, to introduce yourself to people as an actor. Generally, again, uh, we've talked about this in the past, but generally people will decide in the first 15 or 20 seconds whether or not you've got the callback. And you need to figure out for your monologue a trigger that is going to get you be able to get, get you in there. You can say your pleasantries, hello, how are you doing? They might have a question for you that they might not. You're not going to know until you get in there how long after you walk in the room you're going to be expected to start. You may have to be pleasant. They may say go as soon as you walk in the room. But you need to have some trigger that is going to get you immediately into the world of that monologue on a moment's notice. And as you say, Will, for you, it's about, it's about um, having a, a very clear moment that happened immediately before the monologue. Mm-hmm. I actually know for myself, circumstance is something that is incredibly... I mean, that, that exactly is something that's, that's a trigger for me. But... It also might be for someone who works with sensory things, they might have developed a sensory trigger for something that they just have to get that image of something in their head and immediately gets them to the right place because of the extensive work they've done ahead of time to find what that what that individual thing is that's going to set them off. Or it might have to do with, and we should talk a bit about this too, but the substitution that they might have come up with for the character that they're talking to. There's any number of different things, but that's why... I think it's really important to know yourself as an actor, know what works for you, because for the most part, when you do a role, 
you're going to do work on the circumstances and your sensory work and your substitution, all of those things. And But when you're doing a monologue, certainly do all of that in prep. But when you walk in the room, you have to know what is that one thing that you can do in 10 seconds that is going to get you where you need to be for that monologue. And another thing you have to do to prepare a monologue for an audition setting is be clear and make clear for yourself who you're who you're talking to because when you do the monologue work for a play you come in and your scene partner's there and and you don't have to do any work on that you just look at them and respond to them but you need to create a living acting reactive person for yourself who is hearing you and you have an understanding of how they're hearing you and how that can change from moment to moment and and that's another set of work that you have to do in order to make that monologue active. What 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 how do what do you how do you guys work on that to to create a scene partner where there isn't one? Well, there, there's two ways I work with with a monologue, particularly in an audition setting. One is which I I do all of uh, my work. I go through all the I, I work on it the way I work on a, a play. I go through all the given circumstances. I you know do whatever sensory work I need. I do whatever sort of homework and research I need so that that makes sense. Uh, and so I, I have all of that available to me. I've worked on it as if it's a one-minute to two-minute play. Um, but in that work, I also uh, am clear for myself on what the quick trigger thing is. What is the, the physical impulse? What is the image? What is the, the word, the gesture that sort of can lock me into that right away? And I need both because obviously if you're able to do all of your work the same way you'd work on it as if it were a, a whole performance and a whole play, that can really serve you. The quick trigger that Kit is talking about is so important because unlike being in a play or a film situation, you may not have that opportunity to, to do your full, your, your full prep. And so needing a quick trigger that you can just jump into is so, so vitally important. So I approach the monologue the same way I would a performance, but then have the quick trigger is, is sort of the backup plan for you know trusting that I've I've laid all this groundwork previously and it's in me somewhere. But then there's this quick little trigger I'll get into that's going to get that's going to access as much as possible within that brief period of time, considering whatever just happened that forced me to rely on the quick trigger. Um, the quick trigger. It, I may be repeating myself here, but if you have all day, your whole morning or whatever, to prepare for this audition and, and you can you know, do your relaxation and your vocalizing and do all your given circumstances and all your script work and all your sensory work and walk into the audition uninterrupted, that, that's amazing. That's amazing. That, but you know, considering an actor's life, particularly in New York City, it's rare that you get that. You may have several other auditions you have to go to. You may have a job. You may have other appointments. You get there. There may be other people in the room. Um, in, in the waiting room, you may think you're going at a certain time and then have to wait. You may walk into the room and you know, the, the casting director or the director may want to have a conversation with you before you, you go into your monologue. These are all things that don't happen when you're doing a play. These are all things that don't happen when you're doing a film. <laughs> yeah. On your way to the stage, you know, the director doesn't stop you to talk for a couple minutes about you know, a mutual friend you have. Or where you got your headshot done. These are these are things that may happen in auditions. So that's why it's absolutely vitally important to have that quick trigger that can resource as much of you as possible. Um, but to, uh, to loop back to, to what Kate was talking about earlier when it comes to creating a singing partner, I think it actually refers very specifically to something that I, that I, that I mentioned earlier, which is finding the ideas within your piece that are thrusting you forward. And on that, having that person that you've created, like letting, when are you saying something that you know will be interrupted? When you know that they're not going to stand for what you're saying. And finding those moments to allow yourself to, to find the ebbs and flows of where your argument is. I think that, you know, and that, that, I mean, that, that speaks more specifically even to what Tim was saying earlier about creating a whole play when you're going in to the audition is... You know, you you are reacting to a person who who isn't there, and knowing when. I mean, like right now, I'm I'm looking at, at the faces around the mic, and I'm 
don't see anyone that's going to interrupt me just yet, but I think that at any moment, like, if I was to say, like, you know what, I would love to see a fish get on a bike and then, like, fall off of it and smoke a cigarette. Hey, you, know, hey, you, you lie. There we go. So, <laughs> so I mean, like, but finding, but finding those moments, you know, where, where, where that, where that may happen will, 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 will color your, your audition much more richly. I also think that there's a real way in which you need to do your preparation. But also really trust it. And it's something that I know, because I do a, a fair amount of like audition coaching and things like that. And it is something that I know I, I've done fairly often with people, which is you, you know, once you've talked about who this person is that they're talking to. And, you know, if again, substitution can be very helpful if, if you're talking to a character who reminds you so much of your ex-boyfriend. Well, talk to your ex-boyfriend. I mean... Because you've got a whole world of history there that you can mm-hmm. work with. And I, that, that makes it pretty accessible and pretty easy. Or you can create a character. And, you know, whatever, you know, whatever circumstances, whatever history you can find, whatever picture of them you can have that moves you and makes it feel important to you to say these things to this person and convince them, that's right. Uh, I mean, there is no wrong. Whatever it is that does that is right. But once you've created that person, you can trust that person to show up. And it's something that I've done with people I've been coaching, which is to give them a point at which they say, all right, and on this line, look at your watch. I'm like, why look at my watch? You just look at your watch. And what often happens is on that line, they look at their watch, look up, and what? And there's a reaction. And I asked them, what was that? I said, I was just surprised at how he was looking at me when I looked at him. And I think that, that it really happens when you've created this person you're talking to. The danger is that you can create a very prefab uh, monologue if the idea is, and on this line I'm reacting to the fact that they're arching their eyebrows. Okay, but you're going to know two lines before that they're going to be arching their eyebrows. But there really is something that if you're up there and talking, and you actually in life, when you're talking to people, you're not always looking them in the eye. Most of the time you aren't. And if you're talking to them and making your argument and look at them when you need to make a point and take in how they're looking at you, it is amazing how much of a life of their own this imaginary person can take when you're not trying to control them? I think that's really important. That, that you know, picking your 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 scene partner who's not there. That that's part of your work. If you're, you're given circumstances of of you know choosing who's going to be who's going to help you energize your your monologue. And you know, the, the word you used earlier, Kit, was that it, having a target, one of those those five places the monologue can go. And I think that imaginary scene partner is one of those targets. But I. I think it may be helpful to, to think of that as a moving target. <laughs> that they're they're not an in, they're not a prop sitting there that you launch this thing at that you just sort of the word that's coming to mind is just sort of assault. That it's it's the moving target means they are going to give you reactions that surprise you. You are going to have to to earn your time. As Will said, you know when he looked around the mic, he didn't feel like anybody was going to interrupt him. But there's still this sense that he has to keep making a compelling point in order to continue to earn the time to to speak and. I think having that specific person in in your mind um, helps focus that. It helps energize that, as well as is giving giving you a specific focal point. As far as choosing who the person is, I think it's important to say that it doesn't have to necessarily be the person who is in the actual play as written. Mm-hmm. You can choose anybody, and and you, you mentioned substituting somebody you actually know. But I think there's probably a benefit to choosing someone who's not necessarily sympathetic to what you're saying, who, who might be resistive or, you know, who isn't a, you know, a good ear for what's happening, who, who might have a reaction. I also think that's true, too, for kind of all of the circumstances that you build for yourself surrounding a monologue. I don't think you necessarily have to be 100% beholden to what's happening in actuality surrounding it in the play. Mm-hmm. Um, I think you can build in for yourself that so-and-so is on the other side of the door and could be listening, or you know, someone's about to walk in, or whatever is going to make sense and, and really drive it for you and up your stakes. I, I tend to you know, create this entire world that has uh, sometimes nothing to do with what's actually happening in the play at that moment, I, which is very helpful for me. I, I, I couldn't ag- agree more with that. That tactic. I think it's important, obviously, to know the circumstances yeah. in the play uh, as if the play, in case they ask you about. It. Yeah. 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 yeah, yeah. Or, just, or just for yourself. I mean, so that you understand, you know, where your your what what the original intent of, of the playwright and writing this piece was. I think it's right. important to know all those. That being said, particularly in an audition situation where you're doing the monologue, 
so that people can see if you're right for a particular role or if it, in the case of, you know, you're auditioning for an agent or casting director so that they can see sort of what your type is and what type of roles you'd be good for. Uh, if I see no reason to be beholden to all the specific circumstances of the play in that case, um, and in, in a lot of cases I think it can actually do you a disservice to do that. Um, I've had struggles with actors while, while I was working on pieces where they've, they've wanted me to adhere to the world of the play. And, and if I were doing that play, I certainly would. But particularly in an audition situation, I don't see how that helps me with the goal is. I think one of the, as Kit talked about at the beginning when we introduced the subject of uh, monologues and auditions, it simply is a different animal than acting in a film or acting in a play. And I think to to pretend that it's something other than what it is, I think does you a disservice. <laughs> in general, when it comes to acting, your audience, whether it's an agent, a casting director, your classmates, or an actual audience, an actual paying audience, as long as the moment is truthful, they'll okay. buy it. They'll buy whatever truth you're, you're giving them, as long as it's an honest, genuine truth. Mm-hmm. And... I think particularly where you have a vested interest in an audition situation, in that particular audience buying what you're doing, because that's how you're going to get the job. Um, Already pretending that the situation is something that it is not presents uh, a level of untruth that doesn't do you any good. I think that it's really important to note, though, that these auditions, especially when you're doing monologues and you're asked to prepare something specifically, it's not about the play at all. Mm -hmm. It's about you. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And that's, I think that should actually kind of govern whatever choices you make. It really is about what are you going to bring to the table. And so if you need to break from what the, you know, I think it's very important to actually know what, you know, depending on what piece you pick, to know like what's going on in that play in that piece in case you get asked because you don't want to go in there and like you know be left holding a sack of wet candles don't know what that means but you don't I wouldn't want I agree I wouldn't want it but you wouldn't want that I think we all um, agree we don't want that but uh but I do think that it's 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 important to to approach the piece to showcase yourself and to let that to let that be what what uh, what, what guides your choices and how you think you want to present yourself. And I think, I mean, related to all of this, one of the things that I think is especially important when you're working on a monologue for auditions is to set incredibly high stakes for yourself. Mm-hmm. Um, I mean, obviously that's important when you're doing a play, too. But I think the reason it's especially important in an audition setting is that it actually makes, in some ways, the other person a little less critical to being compelling. Because if you know, if I don't make my argument well, this huge, horrible thing that you can really believe in is going to happen. If you just talk and listen to yourself and assess whether or not you're getting closer to this either further from this terrible thing that will happen or closer to this wonderful thing that has to happen, there's a lot of ways in which your previous sentence becomes your scene partner. That it, it, makes, it makes your argument itself all the more important. And, and, and it makes, again, sort of reacting to the way you're making your argument something that's very real. And obviously you want, again, to have the scene part you've created there with you, but in case, even in, even in the case that they don't show up that day, mm-hmm. which can happen, you know, it gives you something very real to struggle with, even if it's only the ideas and the facts in this thing that you're talking about in the monologue, uh, because they become important, again, in a vacuum. And I also think, uh, piggybacking off of that, I also think it's important to have high stakes right from the beginning mm-hmm. of the monologue. Not not to leave, I, we've talked about this before in other podcasts, but not to leave yourself somewhere to go. Start, start with it being the highest stakes. And you'll, I mean, you'll, you'll end up going somewhere. But again, like you said, you know, they, they'll decide in the first 15 seconds if they want to call you back. And they may cut you off halfway through and you may not end up getting to that place that you want. And I think this also all goes back to something that, that Tim was saying earlier, which, I mean, is... It, it sounds so so basic, but it's also one of those things that I think that a lot of actors 
may may risk, which I don't think you can, is knowing your piece inside and out so you can make these choices. Mm-hmm. If you don't know your piece well enough to make these huge choices, you'll get in there and you'll lose your words. You'll lose your words because you're you're trying new things, awesome things, letting the scene surprise you. And if you don't know this thing inside and out to where you can let the words not be in your head until the moment you're saying them, nothing else will, is going to be working for you. Right. Nothing else is going to be working for you. What right. will be working is an actor struggling, struggling through text and trying to approximate some sort of all the other things we're talking about, an objective, an obstacle, there's, they're, you know, what they're feeling, who their scene partner is. You know, all those things would best be working you know, at, a, at a minimal percentage rather than seeing uh, an actor really struggle through it, what that dramatic problem is for them in that. And you, and you won't see anything else from the actor. No, you'll see... I mean, you'll see... And you you might wind up playing the idea of something rather than mm-hmm. rather than really doing it. And I think the reason, the reason I say that is because sometimes you really don't have that much time before you have this audition. Sometimes you may have literally two days to actually get something together. And that's... I, I think that, you know, it, that's why it's important to have things sort of Standing that are always ready to go, um, that you do work often, that you do revisit, um, so that when you when called upon to do them, you can go in and make strong, specific choices and play it like a a play, rather than uh, trying to figure something out two days before, trying to learn it, trying to get in your brain. You think you know it all, and then all of a sudden. That's not that's not the case. I had an audition experience last week that touches on a lot of what we've talked about today in that I had an audition for a play, Bus Stop by William Inge, and I knew I was had sides prepared. I had the play in advance, and I actually had the opportunity to pick whatever side I wanted. I was able to pick whatever section of the play I wanted. I was going to come in and, and read with... Uh, the casting director would be there, but I would actually have the opportunity to read with the director, who was, was Austin Pendleton. And so I was all excited about getting able to, you know, read a scene with Austin Pendleton. And I walk into the audition, and I'm all I'm all ready. I got my sides picked out. I made him a copy. Um, he had the play already. Um, uh, and I, I met the the casting director. And the first thing he said was, "You know, are you ready to do your monologue?" I had no idea that I was supposed to prepare a monologue for for that day. Uh, it wasn't. Uh, it was a uh, audition I got from my agent. They hadn't mentioned it. Uh, it wasn't in the breakdown, it wasn't in the, the announcement, anything. And so I looked at him, and then he obviously read that register of surprise. He said, do you have a monologue? And I said, oh yeah. And I just said, didn't know I was supposed to do one today, but I'm more than ready, let's go. And I had to then rely on the quick trigger I had, because I literally had five seconds. I'm already in the room. Um, and uh, had I not done, um, and I felt successful about, about the... Uh, the the monologue um, because there was an extra element of being charged of the fact that just the adrenaline of oh I've got to do this now um, and uh, had I not been working on that monologue had I not been prepared to work on that monologue had I not constantly been trying things with that monologue and had a quick trigger for it had I not even you know had I not had a monologue um, that audition which I felt very successful about would have gone entirely entirely differently. And so I think that's why a lot of things we're talking about in terms of the quick trigger, in terms of constantly being prepared, in terms of having a facility with your monologue are just really, really important because when and how and the context in which you may have to do that work is, is, is there's going to be so many variables you can't account for. And the one thing you can control is your uh, ability to handle that piece. It's the one thing you can probably control in an audition situation. I think that's a good place to wrap up, uh, so thank you for joining us. If you like what you're hearing and would like other people to hear it, please let people know the podcast is out there. Also, go to iTunes and write a review or give us stars, and if you are hearing this and are not subscribed, also go to iTunes and subscribe there. If you'd like to know more about the Cry Havoc Company, go to www.cryhavoccompany.org. And if you have any comments or questions, please email us at podcast at cryhavoccompany.org. We'll be back soon with more conversations about the craft and lifestyle of being an actor, director, and writer in New York City with us and with other members of the Cry Havoc community. So thank you for all of us, and we'll talk to you soon. 
Cryhavoc Company at cryhavoccompany.org. Questions or comments can be sent to podcasts at cryhavoccompany.org. All music from this show came from the Podsafe Music Network at music.podshow.com. Thanks for listening and please subscribe.